can turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're closing off this book today. And uh, I like to end on an even number, so I pick 90. We've had 90 messages in our study through 1 Corinthians, and it's been a little over three years. Started back in 2018, and been plowing away ever since. <laughs> and if you're new here, we just teach through books of the Bible. That's kind of what we do, and try to do the best we can. But uh, once again, just remember Inga and Paul and their family, too. Is, uh, she just lost her brother this morning. That's very unfortunate, but... It's life, and, and God gives us the grace to deal with it. But it really accentuates the importance of knowing um, the Lord, because you can really embrace death in a whole different way. But just a way of reminder where we've been through this book, we've seen from the very beginning, they've a very carnal church, the church of Corinth. Um, they had a lot of divisiveness. They had a lot of... Uh, moral discernment that they didn't practice. They had a lot of problems going on in their church. They had marital difficulties in couples' lives. They had lifestyle disagreements. They had issues with male and female distinctions. And um, it it sounds pretty much like our society today, to be honest with you. Uh, They uh, weren't really experiencing much spiritual devotion in the lives of believers there. They had differences in uh, ministry. And we looked at that in verses chapters 12 through 14. And then we closed off in chapter 15 with essential doctrines that they did not believe, speaking of the resurrection. And um, of all the churches, I think, in the New Testament to which Paul wrote a letter, and remember, this was a letter. This wasn't a book. This was just a letter that you would read in one setting. Uh, None of them was in more trouble than the Corinthian church. They just had a lot of issues going on. There was none that was, you could say, none that was as sinful as the Corinthian church. There was none that had failed so badly to live up to what the Lord had called them to be as his church. They had a lot of issues. They had a lot of problems. And so Paul, as their founding pastor, he pastored, founded the church and pastored there for 18 months. And he turned it over to Apollos. But the important thing to remember is that this comes from the heart of a pastor. This comes from the heart of somebody who really helped give birth to this church. So he had a lot invested with this church, and I'm sure it grieved his heart to have to write every word, because mostly it's, it's a letter of condemnation. It's a letter of rebuke, I guess is a better word to say, not condemnation, but rebuke. And there's no other church really in the New Testament that is rebuked as hard as this. And, um, you know, you can imagine sitting down as a member of this church and reading this letter in one sitting. We've taken a little over three years to go through it. So we've had time to digest all the hard words that he had to say. But if you read it in one sitting, you'd probably be overwhelmed knowing that, wow, this is our uh, founding pastor's writing us this letter. And he's not too pleased. He's kind of ticked off. And so it was really a letter of rebuke. And one letter didn't do it. He wrote how many? Two, possibly three. Two of them are in the canon of Scripture. 
But with the two that are in the canon of Scripture, we have basically a total of 29 chapters written to this book that deals with all these different kinds of issues. So in terms of chapters, it makes, makes it one of the longest addresses to a church in the New Testament. I wouldn't want all these chapters written about me in a negative way, that's for sure, right? Nobody would, but that's what happened. And so uh, it's loaded with rebuke on every page, and we've seen that as we've gone through it. But it's interesting because back in chapter 4, all the way back in chapter 4, verse 14, he says this, I did not write these things, I'm not writing this letter to you, Corinthians, to make you feel ashamed. That's not his point. And sometimes we, we have to remember that when we're rebuking somebody, we, we don't want to do it in a way that shames them, especially if, if they're, obviously, if they're a brother or sister in Christ. And yet, so many times that's the approach we take. We feel if we shame somebody enough, they'll correct their behavior. But Paul says, I didn't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. You could see how much his pastoral heart is just flowing out of the words that he wrote. He didn't want to tear them down. He didn't want to beat them down, even though they were already down spiritually. They weren't doing anything right spiritually. But he wanted to, in love, admonish them to correct their sinful behavior. And that's what we need to be reminded of. That's what it's about when... You have a church that practices church discipline and things like that. It doesn't come out as a harsh, negative reality. It comes out of, a, of hearts of love. A church that doesn't offer to discipline its members who are sinning really is a church that doesn't love its members. And the goal for church discipline is always what? It's, it's to restore that person. It's not to kick them out of the church. We want to go there right away. And no, it's a lengthy process when you work through something like that. But as we saw through this book, he addresses all this bad behavior. And then he kind of, the apex of the whole book is chapter 13, where he lands on love. And he talks about the definition of love. And he talks about all these things. And really, he's rebuking them. He's correcting them out of love, as any parent would do their child. Talk to a lot of people who grew up in homes where they had no correction. They had no... No discipline at all. And you think, wow, as a kid, you would love that. But they look back and they go, no, really, I didn't. (laughs) I kind of long for the families where the mom and dad set some boundaries for me, not the ones that just let everything fly. And so the first 14 chapters of this letter was addressed to straighten out all the, the crazy thinking and the errant behavior and errant theology. In chapter 15, he addresses that. And now in chapter 16, we saw that he basically comes to the end of the chapter and he says, you know what, there's a couple things left. I'm driving out of the driveway, but wait, there's one more thing I want to share with you, Corinthians. And so I want to ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we read verses 10 through 24 as we close off this this book today. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 10. Paul pens these words, and he says, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him and uh, with the brothers Verse 12, now concerning our brother Apollos, I, was, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers 
But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. As I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of of Stephanus and uh, Fortunatus and Achaeus. Because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. Father, we ask you bless these words to our heart as we look at them together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Remember, in this chapter 16, we're looking at, they realize the importance of financial support. In verses 1 to 4, they remembered the issue of the will of God in verses 5 to 9. And now we come to, basically, today, talking about recognizing the work of others. Recognizing the work of others. I did a little thing in my office this morning, and I thought, I wonder on a Sunday morning how many people are involved in serving here at our little church. I mean, you look around, there's not that many people here. It's a small little church. I counted upwards of 25 to 30 people, which is pretty amazing. In some form, are are serving, whether they're greeting at the door, whether they're working in the kitchen, whether they're in the sound room, helping with the Sunday school. Pretty amazing. And it's good to recognize that. It doesn't happen... From the hands of one person. And this is what Paul wants them to understand in verses 10 to 12. He wants them to recognize the work of others. And the first one he mentions here in the text is uh, Timothy. He says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. And let no one despise him. But help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. It's almost a warning from Paul. Don't mess with this guy. Yeah, he's a young little whippersnapper of a pastor, but you know what? He's serving the Lord. And we can see here, Timothy had a problem of acceptance among the church. People looked at Timothy and they thought, well, he's too immature. Maybe he's... You know, not as spiritual mature as he needs to be, whatever. But this was Paul's spiritual child, you might say. He indicates that in in Acts chapter 16. He writes this, verses 1 to 3. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. So a Messianic Jew, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul asking you, hey, can you help me in ministry? Can you be my right-hand guy? 
And he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, wanted to be above reproach in all ways, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And Timothy was willing to go along with the program. That's a pretty big commitment when you stop and think about it. First Timothy 1.18 says this, This charge I entrust to Timothy. Paul's writing to Timothy himself. And he says, Timothy, my child, he means his child in the faith, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. I mean, that's what Christian ministry is. That's what the Christian life is, is it not? Warfare? I mean, we have to go at it every day. It never stops. Until that one day when we finally depart from here and be with the Lord forever, then we finally win the battle. But up until that point in time, he says you have to hold on to the faith. And you have to do it with a good conscience. And you have to wage a good warfare. You have to be willing to fight for what you believe. You don't let people trample over your faith. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, he writes this to Timothy. He says, command and teach these things. Now remember, he's writing a kind of a young disciple, uh, a pastor. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and in love and faith and in purity. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. He says in verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. He's trying to encourage this young disciple. He says, keep a close watch on yourself, Timothy, and on your teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What an excellent exhortation for a young pastor. Watch your teaching. Play close attention to yourself. I mean, no pastor's perfect. We all have faults. We all have issues. But we have to pay close attention to them because we don't want those issues to creep up and disqualify us. From serving the Lord. And it's the same way whether you're a pastor or not. As a Christian, you want to make sure that you're watching yourself. You're watching your behavior out there in the world. Because people are watching you. When you name the name of Christ, that's who you're representing. So we want to do that in an honest and way that would be glorifying to the Lord. And then Paul writes to Timothy once again in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. He says, Oh, Timothy, guard that deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irrelevant or irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. You know, sometimes people like to get into debates and arguments that really are way above our pay grade. You, know, you sit down and you talk to people, well, you know, you bring up the issue of free will. Do you think we have a free will? Well, I don't know. The scripture says we don't. The scripture says before we're a Christian, we're a what? We're a slave to sin. After we're a Christian, we're a slave to what? 
a slave to Christ. It doesn't sound like that's a free will. Now, I get what they're saying, but you can argue that till the cows come home with some people. And you get on the subject of election and all that, and boy, you just argue, argue. You know, a lot of times I'll say, look, you know, God doesn't saveth, save, save us outside of our volition. He doesn't do that. We don't go to heaven. No, I don't want to go, God. I don't want to trust Christ. Well, you're gone anyway. I chose you. <laughs> That's not how it works. Somehow God, in his supernatural ability, works with our, our, our will and our desires, and he conforms it to his. And, and if we're elect before the foundations of the world, guess what? We will be in heaven one day, period. But people have issues with that doctrine. And they want to argue about it. I just say, I don't understand it, but I know it to be true. And when I find a place that says, you know what? If you profess the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and you turn from your sins, you will be saved. That's an open invitation. Sometimes they'll say, well, is that open to everybody? It can't be open to everybody because if you're not elect, you're not going to respond. It's open to everybody. Or Jesus is a a fraud. Because when he said, come on to me, all ye. Right? It was an open invitation. It had to be a legitimate invitation. How that works with God's sovereign will and election, I don't know. But we don't want to get sidetracked by things like that. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 2 to 8, he says, To Timothy, my beloved child, you can kind of sense the love he has for this guy. Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, I, I thank God whom I serve, as, my, as did my ancestors, this is Paul writing, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. You know, if you have a relationship with somebody, you're discipling somebody, it's, it's my heart that you're, you're praying for that person. You're not just meeting once a week and then forgetting about them. You're praying for them. He says, I prayed for you day and night. As I remembered your tears, I longed to see you, he says, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, he says of Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I'm reminded to fan into flame the gift of God. He wanted to encourage this young man, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, Timothy. I know you're young, and I know a lot of people probably mock you and say, hey, you, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. You're too, and, and Paul says, no. If God's called you, you go do it. Didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, Paul says, his prisoner. A lot of people were making fun of Paul because he was in prison. Yeah, look at where it got him. Uh-huh. Go ahead, Timothy. Go down that road and see where it gets you. That's what they were trying to put in this young disciple's head. And Paul says, don't listen to him. Don't be ashamed of that. But share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. What's interesting, when he says here, back in 1 Corinthians 16, let no one despise you. It's a different word than over in 1 Corinthians 4.12 in first or first Timothy four twelve. In first Timothy four twelve that word despise means to think down, kinda of like uh, you're 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 nothing. But here it means to treat as absolutely nothing. Like just you're just you're treating someone bad. You're not just thinking about it, you're actually treating them bad. And so he's thinking of others here. He's recognizing Timothy's work, but he also recognizes Apollos' work. 
And Apollos was the man who basically came came in after Paul left, after 18 months, after he found this church, he came in and, and started to teach there. And apparently he was a very good orator. He knew how to expound the word and, and people enjoyed his teaching. The problem with the Corinthian church is they started to follow the individuals. Remember the, the verses we went through? I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. I'm of Jesus. You know, I'm of this. I'm of, they started to follow personalities. Church should never be about that. But Apollos here, in verse 12, we see that he had a a problem of opportunity. He had a problem of opportunity. Because he said, hey, I wanted, I tried to get Apollos to come and encourage you guys as well. Now, this is kind of three people that he's sending their way. That's how far gone this church was. He says, our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with you, with the other brothers, but... It was not at all in his will. In other words, he couldn't do it. It didn't fit his schedule. He was busy somewhere else, but he said he'd stop by if he could. And so he just didn't have the opportunity. He didn't have the convenient time. And sometimes that's how ministry works. And so it's important to recognize the work of others. But secondly here, or fourthly in our our series, we looked at the importance of financial support. Remember the idea of the will of the Lord, recognize the work of others. And then fourthly, receive the exhortations to spiritual maturity. Look at what he says in verse 13. And all these thoughts at the end of all apostle, the Apostle Paul's letters, it's kind of like, whether it's a paragraph or a whole chapter as it is here, he kind of like in staccato fashion just starts to ramble off things. And it seems like nothing's connected to each other. And it's kind of like the guy's driving out of the driveway and he's still yelling stuff at him. Hey, remember this, remember that. And so here... In verse 13, he says, be watchful. And he begins to list off five imperatives. They're almost like military commands. Like just one word statements. And he wants them to to be exhorted into uh, spiritual maturity. And these are ways that you do that. And the first one deals with be cautious, be watchful. The words used 23 times here. It refers to a couple things. It refers to being ready about the coming of the Lord because you don't know when that will be. We're told to watch for the coming of the Lord in Matthew 24 and 25. That should be on our hearts. We don't want to be caught somewhere we shouldn't be and doing something maybe the Lord doesn't want us to do because the Lord is coming back. We've seen that taught throughout this this letter. But then it also refers to the dependence upon the Lord. In other words, not trusting yourself. And a lot of times in the Christian walk, that's exactly what happens to us. Is it not? We kind of grow complacent. And at first, when we're first saved and the burden of our sin is lifted and we're so excited. And boy, we're praying for opportunities to, to serve the Lord and praying for opportunities to share the gospel with others. And we're just really, really excited about it. And then we grow a little bit in our faith, and pretty soon that that excitement begins to kind of, it's like it's under a a wet blanket. And pretty soon, "Ah, you know, I got this. I can do this. You know, I I don't need to pray about everything. And so it begins to affect our dependence on the Lord. Pretty soon we find ourselves trusting ourselves more than we do the Lord. That's never a good place to be in and he speaks to that in Colossians uh, chapter 4 verse 2 
He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. There's the word. In it with thanksgiving. You know, that's something that we all probably struggle with, our prayer lives. It's just, it's just difficult a lot of times to keep a consistent pattern. And if it becomes too consistent, then it just becomes routine. Yeah, I did my prayer this morning and that's it. I mean, I grew up for 18 years as a Roman Catholic. And before I went to bed, I knew exactly what I was going to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us our day, daily bread, and give us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Blind is the power of the glory of Hail Mary, for grace. Lord is with. I do those two prayers, and I say, God bless everybody else in the world. Amen. And I go to bed. But I did it faithfully every night. But it didn't mean anything. See, just praying from out of routine is it's really irrelevant. God's looking for heartfelt prayers and that comes from our dependence on the lord i mean when do you pray the most be honest with yourselves when do you pray the most when you're in need when you go to the doctor and you get the bad test right or you go to this wow i just gotta pray you know but if everything's going fine then maybe you're not praying as much so it talks about being ready for the lord's coming the dependence on the lord not trusting ourselves it also refers to being aware about the possibility of false teachers being aware of divisiveness, even within the leadership of a church. He addresses that in Acts 20. Be watchful. That's why a church has elders. That's why a church has, has men who, who, who rule the church. Now, they're, they're under Christ. They're not, they're not the head chief person. It's Christ. We're, we're subservants under Christ. But the one thing we do is we, we want to be watchful. Over our congregation, Ken and I. We don't want to just open up the gates and say, oh sure, anybody can teach whatever they want. We don't really care. That wouldn't be being watchful. That would be being careless. Because the potential, the greatest potential for harm to any local church is not from without. It's not. It's from within. It's from the people who are sitting here this morning. It's from the leadership who's here this morning. That's the potential danger. And so we have to be watchful about that. And it also, in First Peter, refers to resisting the devil, being watchful for that one who prowls about like a, a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And we just have to be watchful of that. So that's the first one there. He, first exhortation is be, be watchful. Secondly, he says, stand fast in the faith. Stand fast. It's, it's, this word is used eight times. And he says, stand firm in the faith. You know, you, you run into some Christians and they're anything but firm in their faith. They're, they're anything but firm in their faith. They're all over the map. They don't take a stand on anything. And part of that comes from not having roots in a, in a good Bible-believing church and being willing to invest in that church and put down roots in that church and stay put in that church with some conviction. So he says, stand firm, stand fast there. It refers to our liberty in Christ. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, for the freedom of Christ has set us free. Then he says, stand firm, therefore. 
Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back. You don't want to be going backwards. Stand your ground as Christians. It refers also to our unity. In in Philippians chapter 1 verse 27, Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or whether I'm absent... Now remember, you're talking about the Apostle Paul. Paul says, it doesn't matter whether I'm there or not. He says, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm, listen, in one spirit. In one spirit. He wants his people to be united with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You know, I thought of an illustration this morning, that side by side, that, that, that phrase just brought up a, a, an idea in my head. In grade school, we used to have, uh, uh, where you'd tie the ankles together, you know, of a group of people, and then you'd have a race. I don't know what they call it, but yeah, three-legged race. And you'd try to do that. You know what? You can't do a three-legged race efficiently if, if one guy is going off in another direction, another, it just doesn't work well. Right? You break your ankle or something. You all have to move in unison. That's the picture here as a church. That we're all on the same page. That's why, you know, as as a church, we offer church membership because we believe that it's important. We believe that it's biblical. But it also gives us an opportunity for you to say, you know what? Yeah, we're, we're with you on this doctrinally. We understand this is what you believe in. We're there. Because that, that helps us. Discern, okay, who's, who's here and who's not? Uh, are they side by side with us or not? Or Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and whom I long for, once again, his pastoral heart is just overflowing, my joy and my crown, he says, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Don't be going back and forth. Don't be, you know, wishy-washy in your theology. Stand firm. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. See, when we're focused on one thing as a body of Christ, when we understand that, you know what, Lord, you have called us to this. You know, we're not saying we're the only church on the block. <laughs> That's not, it's not a prideful thing. But it's also important to believe Know what you believe and to be faithful and, and to stand firm in that, that, that direction. Today, unfortunately, churches are not taking a stand on anything. I talk to a lot of pastors who say, yeah, I don't teach theology because it's, it's divisive. I'm like, well, what do you teach if you don't teach theology? I mean, you're a church. You're not interested in what God says. You're not interested in the personhood of God. You're not interested in the character and attributes of God. You're not interested in God. I'd much rather teach theology than, you know, how to have a happy marriage. Because if I just teach how to, happy, how to have a happy marriage and I don't teach theology that backs up the biblical principles dealing with marriage, it's not going to last. And so he wants them to understand very clearly that, you know what, they, there is some uh, exhortations here, convictions to stand firm. And then I love the next one. Look at what he says. 
It's kind of like they, they almost pile on top of one another. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. And then he says this, act like men. Act like men. You know, he, he, it may not be politically correct to say that today, granted. But you know what? I think men need to hear that message. You know, we don't need a bunch of mamby-pamby Christians running around worrying about, you know, who they're going to offend if they actually stand up for the cause of Christ. This word is used only here in the New Testament. He wants his readers to understand that, you know what? Yeah, if you're going to stand firm, if you're going to be watchful, then you know what? It's going to take a little something in your gut to, to have you do it. You can't just be bowing your knee to every little thing that comes along. So he's saying, act like men. Be a man. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, I'll just read this for you. It says, the book of the Lord shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Listen, here's what he says in verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you. Wherever you go. See, whether you're a man or a woman, when you understand that, it gives you a little bit of spunk. It gives you a little bit of boldness. Realizing that when you go out there in the world and you share the gospel and they criticize you or they persecute you, they're not persecuting you, they're persecuting Christ. And then he wants them even to be more encouraged. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. And then he says, finally, what? Be strong. Be strong. This speaks of confidence. It's used four times. It refers to inward strength. It's the same word that's used in in Luke chapter 1, verse 80, where it, it tells us that the child, speaking of Christ, grew and became strong in spirit. Same word. It's also used in Luke chapter 2, verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, speaking of the Lord Christ. But it also refers to spiritual strength. The same word is used over in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. Do you hear that? This isn't something you'd have to go out and do on your own. This is something that the Spirit of God does within you. This is something that God does through the church and through the power of his word. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Do you ask God to strengthen you in your spirit? Do you ask God to strengthen you in your inner being? Or do you just get up every day and say a little prayer, God bless the day, and go on about your business? Hopefully you're, you're, you, you feel strong in your faith. There's a confidence in what you believe. You're not easily dismayed or sidetracked. And then the last thing he mentions here in these staccato kind of commands that he's giving, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And then in verse 14 he says, let all you do be done in what? Charity or love. kind of like he's 
Remember when I told you in chapter 13 about love? Well, I'm bringing it right back around to it. Let all things be done with love. That word is used over 250 times, either in the noun or the verb form. Love one another itself is used 16 times. I think it's a little pretty important that we understand what it means to have the love of Christ for each other in the church. You know, it's important to pray. It's important to pray for for people when they lose their loved ones. Why? Because we love them. It's important to pray for people when they're sick. Why? Because we love them. They're part of our family. They're part of the body of Christ. Even whether they come to our church or not is irrelevant. It's really a test of a genuine disciple of Christ, this, this aspect of love. In John chapter 13... Verses 34 and 35, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you that you what? Love one another, just as I have loved you. Wow, what a standard. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's always interesting to me how Jesus, when he commands us to do something, he relates it to himself. Here he's relating love. But you remember another kind of a aspect of love is what? Forgiveness. And Jesus says, just as you have been forgiven by me, so forgive others. Sometimes that's hard for us to do, is it not? You hear people all the time say, well, I'll forgive, but I'm not going to forget. Well, I don't know. I'm kind of glad Jesus forgot our sins. Are you? I mean, I'm glad that you know, there's not going to be a day and he's going to sit me down. Yeah, remember when you did this? No. no, it's all forgotten. It's all buried in the depths of the sea. It's covered by the blood of Christ. Why? Because he forgave me. So when we come to Christ and we have to forgive someone, some, somebody else, we, we can't use that as a cop-out. Now, you may not go back to the same place you were before with that person you have to forgive. I mean, if someone rips you off once, they rip you off twice, and you keep on saying, well, I forgive you, I forgive you, and you go back a third time... I'm going to question your sanity, right? Why would you do that? Doesn't mean you don't forgive them, though. So he, he gives us these, these commands. And then the fifth thing here I see in verses 15 to 16, he includes this one other thing, to, to respond to the leadership of others. He mentions some people here. Stephanus, this is a, a godly man and his family, and these were... Paul's apparent first converts in Greece. And he said, you know what? Soon they they might come and visit you, Corinthians. I mean, you guys need all the help that you can get. So I'm going to send everybody I know. Uh, Fortunatus and Acasis, these two guys, 17 to 18, these are fellow believers who Paul knew. And they uh, arrived there in Corinth. The problem, they heard what was going on. They came and they, they want to encourage Paul himself and he wanted them to respond to the leadership and the ministry of others not just his alone well how does he want them to do this by first of all by submitting to them he says submit yourselves unto such as these i mean that's what you do when you're confronted with leaders is you're called upon to submit to them Sometimes we agree with them, sometimes we don't. But we're still called to have a heart of submission. 
Verse 17, he says another, another way that you can respond is by supplying their needs. He says, for that which was lacking on your part, they have supplied. In other words, look, if we all work together on this, some of you may not be able to help out, but there's going to be others of you who can. That's okay. Just to pick one person that you're going to help out and favor them constantly, that's not really right. So he says, you know what, you need to submit to such as these. And, and one way you do that is, is, is by helping supply for their needs. And then he says, look to strengthen them inwardly. Verse 18, he says, these, these gentlemen have refreshed my spirit. In other words, these are people that I enjoy having around. Why? Because they're an encouragement to me. I mean, we've all been around people who are not an encouragement. You know, you see them coming and always, all, you know it's not going to be positive. You just know. And that's unfortunate. But you know what? There's something said about somebody who comes alongside of you and is willing to speak truth, but also encouragement into your heart and into your lives. We all would love that. And I'm much, much more apt to receive something hard spoken from someone who has an, a spirit of encouragement. Even if it's something hard you don't want to hear. You, you say, well, I, I know that they really want to help. And even though it's hard to hear what they're saying, I, I'm going I'm to set that aside. And I'm going to be willing to embrace it because maybe it's true. And they end up refreshing your spirit. And he says, and yours. In other words, these people have a track record of, of helping I mean, that's what the body of Christ should be about, right? We, we shouldn't come in here Sunday mornings with a critical spirit, you know, oh, look at what they're wearing, oh, look at this, look at that, look at who took, who took communion or who didn't or whatever. That has no place within the body of Christ. We should become every Sunday morning prayed up and rested up and ready to embrace the word of God and others within the congregation. Why? Because that's refreshing. And then sixthly here, it reflects the love of Christ to one another. He wants them to do that in verses 19 to 24. He mentions Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, They were really good friends of the Apostle Paul when he stayed at their house during his first ministry there in Corinth. Acts chapter 18 tells us that. It's possible that he, some commentators say, he may have stayed a year there. So he knew these people. And they were, they were fellow tent makers. They were fellow ministers. And apparently they were highly respected by the Apostle Paul. Uh, they were valuable to his ministry. They, they went with Paul to Ephesus. And they demonstrated there their, their thorough understanding of the gospel. By taking the, the gifted Apollos and, and, and they took him aside actually. And they, they began to explain to him. The way of God more accurately, it says in Acts chapter 18. So these were people that Paul really embraced. And he had a love for. They had a church in their own house. So you know they loved the church of Christ. I mean, if you're willing to have a church in your own house every week, that's, that's a pretty big sacrifice, right? I mean, that's, 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 that's showing, putting it all down there. 
But you see the, the showing of their love there in verse 20. It says one another. Notice that in verse 20. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another. And that means every believer. You know, a lot of times, even in a small church like ours, you know, you can go through a Sunday and you miss speaking to somebody. You know, you just get busy. Somebody asks you, whatever, and you get sidetracked. and You don't get to see every face. You don't get to shake every hand. And I don't know about you, but I think that that's important. It's important that you don't just fall into a little group that you meet with every Sunday and that's the only group and you never talk to anybody else. You know, break out of your comfort zone. Say, you know what? I never talked to this person. I wonder what they do for a living. Go talk to them. Get to know them. So it has this idea of accepting every believer, but it also, he says here, greet one another with what? Holy kiss. Okay? Deals with the appropriateness of our love toward one another. Um, Love in the fellowship, love in any fellowship, in any church, is always marked by something outward. There there should be some visible sign of affection within our church. I pray if you're visiting here this morning, you don't feel like we're some cold-hearted people that don't want outsiders here. I hope that, pray that someone talked to you when you walked through the door. Someone greeted you when you walked through the door. In Scripture... We think of, you know, a kiss, a holy kiss. What was interesting is kissing is a romantic sense between a man and a woman. And it's referred to only twice in Scripture. Only twice. In Proverbs 7.13 and in Song of Solomon 4.11. So, you know, in our society we think of kissing as some, you know, sensual contact. Well, in their day this was just a common greeting. And you can see it even among Italians. You can see it from people the, the, the Middle East. You know, when you greet them, what do they do? They, they come up and they give you a hug and they want to kiss you on the cheek. You know, I'm usually, I'm like, whoa, dude, what are you doing, you know? But that's just cultural. And you got to let them do it or you offend them. I remember when we were over, uh, even when we went to Israel, you know, you'd go in these shops and they'd say, oh, do, can we get you some tea? It's like, nah, it's fine. I don't, I don't drink tea. And I forget who was with us, whatever, uh, Hawking, David Hawking was with us. But somebody mentioned to me that, you know, you can't do that. You're kind of insulting them. But I don't like tea. It doesn't matter. <laughs> You're insulting them. So, okay, I'll take your tea. And then you go in the next shop and you accept tea, sure, you know. I mean, you're drinking tea coming out your ears. But it's, it was a cultural thing. And it was a cultural thing to embrace each other and, and, and to do this. A kiss on the cheek or a kiss on the forehead. That was very essential. And you know what? I don't want to become a church where we're cold. I don't want to become a church, even though I'm not a real huggy kind of guy. I don't know if I should say this. But I kind of miss, you know, our little greeting every week. You know, we used to be able to hey, go around and shake hands. And, you know, this whole COVID thing has gotten so far out of whack. You know, we think we have to sterilize ourselves everywhere we go. And God forbid we should shake someone's hand. I don't know about you, but I think I'm a, we're going to bring that back, Ken. What do you think? We're going to have a little greeting time, you know. And, and we're going to start doing communion the normal way. And we're going to start having an offering past the plate and, you know, our bag or whatever it is. And I just think it's important because, you know what, that, that shows us that there is a love here. There is an affection among us. As the body of Christ. 
And we love being together as a church, or we should. And you see here this, the affection they had for one another, but also the seriousness of this love. Look at verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed or anathema. Wow. If you don't have any love in your heart for the Lord Jesus Christ, what is, what is Paul saying? Without the love for the Lord, you're under the curse of sin and hell is your destination. You have no hope for eternal life whatsoever. It's very serious within the body of Christ that there's an expression of love for the Lord. Without love for the Lord, we're not ready for the coming of the Lord. And that's what he says there. One translation, it says Maranatha. That's what it means. It means, wow, let the Lord come. I don't know about you, but I'm excited for the Lord to come. I know there's a lot of work that has to be done before he does. And I want to see every soul one for Christ that he wants us to, to win. Share the gospel with everyone. But you know what? There's going to come a day when he returns. Verse 23, he points out that the source of this love is not from us. You know, I know I can say this and, and feel comfortable saying this, but you know what? Sometimes we all struggle with loving one another. I think it was Chuck Swindoll that said the church is like a pack of porcupines. They get close enough to start pricking each other and then they, they move back apart. And that's, that's true. You know, sometimes it's easy to love each other. Sometimes it's difficult. That's why we don't do it in our own, our own power. That's why it has to come through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he points out here. I'm thankful that God doesn't tell us to go love each other and then say, yeah, you've got to do it on your own power. Because I'm sure some of you fight and struggle loving me as I fight and struggle loving you the way that we should love each other. But it's so wonderful to know that God supplies the grace. He supplies this for us. And then the last word, last sentence of this book, just verse 24. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. The spread of that love is, is vast. You know, when you go to a, on vacation, you visit another church and you walk into that church and it's a Bible-believing church where there's believers there. Guess what? You experience the love of Christ immediately. There's just something about it. There's, wow, I can identify with these people. You don't even know these people. Now, they may be of a different culture. They may be of a different background. You know, you go to church back in Pennsylvania, you know, and you start to talk to people before the service. They're talking about the deer they killed or the fish they caught. Or what. I don't relate to that. But you know what? There are brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's just such an important thing to realize that that spreads throughout all facets of the church. It's not isolated just to one building with one pastor and one congregation. And that's what Paul wants them to understand. And so I pray that this study through the book of 1 Corinthians has been a blessing for you. It's been a blessing for me as your pastor to be able to teach you for three plus years in this book. But I'll also say I'm glad it's done. 
we can check that one off and we'll move on to something else. We'll probably do some Thanksgiving, Christmas messages, and then after the first of the year, I'll let you know what other book we're going to be going through. Um, but uh, it's, been a, it's been a blessing, has it not? All right. Well, let's close in a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed to the other side. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have provided a systematic way for us to go through books of the Bible and study them and apply them to our own hearts and lives. And Lord, I know that we could have spent many, many more weeks in this book. But Lord, there's also the practical side of it. And so, Father, there's a lot more uh, between the pages of Scripture that we can dig into. Uh, And so we're looking forward to where you'll lead us next. But Lord, we pray this morning that here in this place right now, uh, you know the hearts of the people gathered here. I, I don't have that kind of information, but you do. And Lord, you know if they've trusted you as their Lord and Savior and their sins are forgiven, then they're part of the church. They're part of the church of Christ. And they can look forward to meeting you one day and living each day to the fullest for the glory of God. But maybe by chance there's somebody here who hasn't responded affirmatively to the gospel. They've never really trusted you with their life, with their salvation completely. Maybe in their head, something still, they're still thinking that somehow they can earn this by coming to church or giving or helping the poor. That's, the Bible does not indicate that. It's, it's, it's a work of God's grace in our hearts. And so we pray that you would help them to find peace, to find rest. And they would not rest. They would not have any peace until they rest fully in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the gift of his salvation. If you've yet to put your faith and trust in Christ, even this morning, Lord, we know that they can cry out to you. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I want to turn from my sin, and, and I, want to, I want to trust your son in the gift of salvation that he's provided. If you pray that with a sincere heart, the Bible says that he will save you. You're not going to have all your questions answered right away. But you're going to know that that burden of sin was lifted. And that God performed a miracle in your heart. He's going to give you a desire to study his word and to fellowship with the true saints of Christ. More importantly, you'll know when that time comes in your life. When you'll breathe your last. Your heart will stop pumping that you can rest, that the Lord will take your soul. And one day it will be reunited with this body that's left behind. And you'll forever live with the Lord. What a glorious promise. And so, Father, we pray as we conclude our service that you'll bless our time across the way, bless the food of our bodies, bless our fellowship. Pray that we'd be encouragement to someone today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing one last song.